Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Welcome to the Dialogue Podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, and in this episode, we're pleased to present Dr. Quincy D. Newell, a historian of the religious experiences of racial and ethnic minorities in the American West. Dr. Newell will speak about her excellent biography titled, Your Sister in the Gospel, The Life of Jane Manning James, a 19th Century Black Mormon, published by the Oxford University Press. I'm sure you will enjoy Quincy's interesting and very well-prepared presentation. If you do enjoy the podcast, we hope you'll consider a Dialogue membership. Within the last year, we have made every article ever published by Dialogue free online to everyone. But to ensure the continued vitality of the premier Mormon Studies journal, we depend on the generosity of our donors please go online at dialoguejournal.com to visit our revamped website and consider the various membership options. And now to our podcast, which was recorded at a meeting of the Orange County Miller Eccles Study Group on November 8, 2019. It's good to have you back in our home. We have missed seeing you. Many of you are regulars, and it's just... uh, you know, it takes some work to put this together, but I'm always glad when everyone comes and uh, we seem to have a good time and we're always rewarded with an excellent presentation, which we have to look forward to tonight by Dr. Quincy Newell. She is, comes from Oregon. That's where she was raised anyway. She studies American religious history, focusing on the construction of racial, gender, and religious identities in the 19th century American West. Her first book examined the ways Native Americans around the San Francisco Bay Area adapted, adopted, and then rejected Catholicism during the Spanish colonial period. I guess it's only natural that given her interest in religion in the American West that she would be drawn into Mormon studies. Even though Quincy is not a member of the church, She spends her time these days studying and writing about 19th century African-American and Native American Mormons. She took a job teaching at the University of Wyoming, where she was on the faculty for 11 years. She is currently an associate professor of religious studies at Hamilton College in Clinton, New York. Quincy earned her bachelor's degree from Amherst College and her master's and doctorate from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. As mentioned earlier, she is co-editor with Benjamin Park of the Mormon Studies Review. Quincy will be speaking to us tonight about her book, Your Sister in the Gospel, The Life of Jane Manning James, a 19th century black Mormon which was published by Oxford (coughs) University Press. Many of us have heard about Jane Manning James over the years. In fact, there was a movie recently made about her life called Jane and Emma. Did anyone here see it? Okay, a good number of you did. I missed it and I, I regret that I wasn't able to see it. Quincy's book is considered the first full length biography of Jane Manning James in which she was able to draw from new and previously unavailable sources. In one interview I saw online, Quincy stated that she likes to get involved in needle in the haystack projects. I look forward to hearing tonight what needles she found during her research into the life of Jane Manning James. Turn the time over to you now, Quincy. Thank you so much. Thank you, I'm so happy to be here tonight. Can everybody hear me okay? All right. I want to thank Matt Bowman and Deja Darrington at CGU for bringing me out um, and our thir- the Thurstons for hosting us tonight. I also want to acknowledge that we meet today on lands that are traditionally occupied, were traditionally occupied and cared for by Native peoples and that our presence here today is made possible by settler colonialism, which has shaped all of our histories in significant ways and which we should take into account as we think about those histories. So in 1902, 
A journalist described the role of newspapers as, quote, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. It took over half a century before this catchy phrasing got applied to Christian churches, which actually surprised me when I was doing some research on this. It was done by none other than the redoubtable scholar of American religion, Martin E. Marty, who described the priestly and prophetic roles of religion as alternately comforting the afflicted, the priestly aspect, and afflicting the comfortable, the prophetic aspect. So I'm borrowing the phrase tonight to think about how we can shake up our standard historical narratives, our comfortable history, if you will, so that we can gain some new insights. And tonight, I want to talk with you about a woman whose story has been used both to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, Jane Elizabeth Manning James. Perhaps you've heard of Jane. How many people have heard of Jane or have run into her? Okay, basically all of you. All right. She was an African-American woman from Connecticut who, as a young woman in the 1840s, joined the movement that became the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, Jane's story... James's story is not, at this point, foundational to the LDS narrative. You could easily tell the story of the 19th century LDS church without mentioning her. Though she is one of those go-to figures for humanizing discussions of race in the church. Still, she didn't make church policy. She was just one of the many people affected by it. <coughs> Nevertheless, James, James's story is intriguing to me because it gives us such a different angle on what it means to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the 19th century. So, a tangent. My dad loves presidential history. Um, he's read all of Robert Caro's books on Lyndon B. Johnson, and those are doorstops. He's read Doris Kearns Goodwin's books, Team of Rivals, and the like. But imagine if the only history of the United States that you knew was from the point of view of its chief executives. You would know a lot but it would be a very narrow story. I'm more interested in other kinds of people. I have read for fun books by Jill Lepore about Benjamin Franklin's sister and about the guy who created Wonder Woman. A book by Erica Armstrong Dunbar about an enslaved woman who ran away from George and Martha Washington. My dad and I are reading about the same time periods, but we're getting very different stories because we're looking at that history from different points of view. We've seen the value of this strategy in fiction as well. How many people have seen or read the book Wicked? A few of you, okay. So Wicked, for example, retells the wonderful Wizard of Oz from the point of view of Elphaba, the Wicked Witch of the West. How many people have read the wonderful Wizard of Oz or seen the movie? Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, we learn from Wicked that the Wicked Witch of the West is actually a much more interesting and relatable character than we initially thought. Alice Randall's The Wind Done Gone retells Gone with the Wind from the point of view of an, ens of an enslaved woman belonging to Scarlett O'Hara. So many others, from kids' books to high literature, use this strategy of retelling the story from a different angle. Change the point of view and the story changes. To really appreciate stories like this to the fullest, we have to consider multiple perspectives. It's not enough for my dad to know presidential history and for me to know the history of the little people. It works best when we can interweave those stories. So I often tell people that Jane James is like the Forrest Gump of 19th century Mormonism. Not in terms of mental capacity, but because in the same way that Forrest Gump's story gives us a different angle on 20th century American history, Jane James's life gives us a new way of looking at 19th century Mormon history. So tonight, I want to think about how James's experience fits into the Mormon story, where the main characters are usually white and generally male. I'm going to talk about some difficult episodes in Mormon history, some things that might feel embarrassing. Please know that I'm not here to attack or to tear down the LDS church. Instead, I want to use these moments to explore how James's racial identity made her religious experience fundamentally different from that of white Latter-day Saints, and to think about how her experience helps us, helps you, me, scholars, practitioners, church members, non-members, how Jane James's experience helps all of us expand our understanding of what it means to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. About a year after Jane James joined the Latter-day Saint movement, she and her family sold their house in Wilton, Connecticut, 
and joined an interracial group of converts led by Charles Wesley Wandell for the journey to Nauvoo. Were you to take this trip today, using the modern interstate highway system, you would drive for about 1,080 miles, a touch over 16 hours, according to Google Maps. Wandell and company, of course, were not driving on the modern interstates. It was 1843. They were taking the modern conveyances of their time, canal boats, steamships, and the like. This group would have left from Norwalk, where Wandell's mission was centered, and then headed down to catch a packet boat to New York City. There, they almost certainly boated, boarded a steamboat heading up the Hudson River. This method of travel was fast for its time and convenient, though it did carry some risks. Steamboats, for example, were uncomfortably prone to blowing up. Steamboats were also segregated by race. Earlier parts of the journey may have been integrated, we can't really tell, but for this leg, James and her family would have been put on the forward deck, windier, wetter, and colder than the other parts of the boat. The rest of the group could be inside and in areas that were more protected from the elements. The segregated accommodations likely continued to be the norm when Wandell's group disembarked at Albany. There, they would have taken a train to Schenectady and then gotten on a canal boat to travel the length of the Erie Canal to Buffalo. At Buffalo, or perhaps somewhat later in Ohio, the situation went from bad to worse for James and the other black members of the group. James later remembered, quote, we were to go to Columbus, Ohio before our fares were to be collected, but they insisted on having the money at Buffalo and would not take us farther, unquote. Now let's pause and take a closer look at that statement. We were to go to Columbus, Ohio before our fares were to be collected, but they insisted on having the money at Buffalo and would not take us farther. There are a number of items here that are crying out for further explanation. I'm just gonna talk about two of them. First of all, do we have anybody here from the Buckeye State? No. Do we have anybody here who has ever spent any time in the Buckeye State? All right. So you know, for example, that Columbus is not on the way from Wilton to Nauvoo, at least not if Buffalo is on your itinerary. That's Columbus, right? So what's going on here? There are a couple of possibilities. One is that from Buffalo, the plan was to take a steamship and then connect with the Ohio Canal System. Going that way, Columbus actually makes sense as a route to the Mississippi River. Another possibility is that James's Ohio geography in the early 1900s when she was telling the story was about as good as mine in the early 2000s, which is to say, not great. She may have meant Cleveland when she said Columbus. If you don't know Ohio, they're easy to confuse. No offense. This geographical question, though, should not distract us from a second larger issue that James's statement seems to gloss over. We were to go to Columbus, Ohio, before our fares were to be collected, but they insisted on having the money at Buffalo and would not take us farther. I know there are a number of lawyers in the room, and I hope you're thinking about what I'm thinking about. Let's imagine that you are going from Buffalo to Columbus, or Cleveland, I don't care. It's 2019, and you're in a hurry, so you fly or you're worried about climate change, so you hire a sailboat. Either way, you book passage, you climb aboard, you head out. In our world, you have probably paid ahead of time. But even if you haven't, even if your fare was to be collected upon arrival, as James's apparently was, your financial situation is unlikely to change so dramatically en route that if you could not pay when you departed, you were able to pay when you arrived. James was not the dine and dash sort, or in this case, the float and flee sort. <laughs> I think it's highly unlikely that she planned to sneak off the boat to avoid paying. So this story doesn't add up. To me then, James's <coughs> statement that she and her family were denied passage because they were unable to pay up front seems to be covering up some other story, some uglier story. It's striking here that the actors are nameless. They're not even described in terms of their occupations. It's just they. They insisted on having the money. They would not take us farther. We're left to speculate who they were. The staff of the boat? Law enforcement officials? Charles Wandell himself? Ohio had a pretty draconian black code, a set of laws governing the lives of black people in the state. It required the black people post a bond when they entered 
and provided for fines if they did not. So this may have been the money that someone was asking for up front <coughs> before helping James and her family get to Ohio. It may not have been an expense that James and her family had budgeted for. And the experience of being singled out, required to pay an extra exorbitant fee based solely on her skin color, being unable to come up with the money, feeling isolated, gesundheit, cheated, looked down upon, abandoned, that experience was probably not one that James was eager to revisit. I think that reluctance, along with a reluctance to make other people look bad, helps us make more sense out of this story. James and her family walked the rest of the way to Nauvoo. They might have started walking from Buffalo or possibly from Akron or Cleveland. Her accounts vary. No matter their starting point, though, they hiked for hundreds of miles. They must have looked like fugitive slaves. They were probably wearing shoes from New Canaan, the town where James had worked before, a town that had developed a bit of a specialty in shoemaking. One of the largest producers of shoes in New Canaan made a sturdy model of shoe that sold well locally. My guess is that this is the sort of shoe that James and her family were wearing. It's the same model of shoe that the manufacturer sold to southern plantation owners for enslaved people's use in the fields. James remembered that she and her family, quote, walked until our shoes were worn out and our feet became sore and cracked open and bled until you could see the whole print of our feet with blood on the ground, unquote. James also remembered that, quote, at Peoria, Illinois, the authorities threatened to put us in jail to get our free papers, unquote. She protested ignorance, quote, we didn't know at first what he meant, for we had never been slaves, unquote. That was a small lie. James's mother, who was traveling with her, had been enslaved before James was born but the group likely didn't have free papers, and there would have been no way to get them so far away from Wilton, Connecticut. The demand for free papers is not surprising. Illinois also had an extensive black code. But let's just pause and acknowledge the racism inherent in the idea of free papers. The assumption behind them was that black people are unfree. That's the default. They needed documents to prove the opposite. And only black people were asked for such documents. White people could travel without restriction. Black people traveling became targets for harassment by law enforcement and anyone else who felt the need to assert white supremacy. James and her family walked through rivers, through forest, through frost. They stayed in abandoned houses and slept in the open air. They depended on the kindness of strangers for food. They carried their belongings on their backs. They looked like fugitive slaves. When James left Wilton, she had a trunk of clothing. When she and her family were denied passage, she sent the trunk with Charles Wandell, the missionary that was leading the group. He was to take it to Nauvoo. Wandell made it, but the trunk did not. Now, many of us, I imagine, have dealt with lost luggage at one point or another. But the items in this trunk were James's way of marking herself as different from fugitive slaves. She owned things, one large trunk full of clothes of all descriptions, <coughs> mostly new, she said. The loss of the trunk tore at James's sense of self, at her self-presentation. If all she owned was the clothing she wore, how could she show others that she was different? So for many people, the doctrine of the gathering posed a diff difficult challenge, but few of them had to deal with the particular challenges of traveling while black in the 19th century. That specific dif difficulty did not fully end when James and her family reached Nauvoo. She said in her autobiography that they, sh they faced, quote, hardship, trial, and rebuff upon arriving in the city. She did not say, but we know from other records, that Charles Wandell was brought up on charges of unchristian-like conduct for abandoning the black members of his group at Cleveland. He was not convicted, though, I think in large part because nobody testified against him. Consider the incentives. What would James and her family gain by testifying against the missionary who converted them? Not much. But what might they lose? Their place in Nauvoo was precarious. Could they risk testifying against a white man? Jane James also described the warm welcome she and her family received from Joseph and Emma Smith. 
Sister Emma was standing in the door, she recalled, and she kindly said, come in, come in. Meanwhile, Joseph Smith made clear that James and her family were welcome. James remembered, quote, Brother Joseph said to some white sisters that was present, Sisters, I want you to occupy this room this evening with some <coughs> brothers and sisters that have just arrived, unquote. James talked incessantly about how good Joseph Smith was to her. I think she was telling the truth as she understood it, but I think she was telling this truth Joseph Smith, a white man and a prophet of God, was good to her, a black woman and an ordinary church member, because she knew her audience, which was largely composed of white church members who cared deeply about emulating Joseph Smith's example. And she wanted them to follow his example, embracing her, rather than Charles Wandell's example, abandoning her. Jane James sought and received two patriarchal blessings during her life. One was given to her by Hiram Smith in Nauvoo. The other was given by Patriarch John Smith in Salt Lake in 1889. Both were deeply important to James. The evidence suggests that she treasured these blessings and meditated upon them after receiving them for the rest of her life. But these blessings were not as unequivocally beneficent as we might imagine. Hiram Smith's blessing informed James that she was the recipient of a, quote, promise through the father of the new world that was handed down, quote, in the lineage of Canaan, the son of Ham. Unlike most patriarchal blessings, which identified their recipients as members of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, usually as descendants of Ephraim, James's blessing reached back to a period of biblical history that predated Ephraim. At the same time, Hiram Smith saddled James with all the racial assumptions of 19th century America, connecting her spiritual lineage to the biblical figure of Canaan, whom Noah had cursed to be a servant of servants, and who white Americans and Europeans identified as one of two important biblical ancestors of black people. Smith compounded the racialized references a few sentences later when he reassured James that, let's see, Yes, um, that quote, he that changeth times and seasons and placed a mark upon your forehead can take it off and stamp upon you his own image, unquote. <clears throat> Smith's reference to the mark upon James's forehead, of course, clearly linked her to the biblical figure of Cain. Here again, Smith drew on white Christians racial folklore, which held that the dark skin of African descended people was the mark of Cain and visual proof of black people's descent from the biblical first murderer. Even as he held out the possibility of release from these biblical curses with the suggestion that God might stamp upon her his own image, Smith invoked the very Bible stories that white Christians used to justify their oppression of black people. James was trapped. She could not get a blessing without receiving a curse. John Smith's blessing, some 45 years later, was more sanguine, but it still speaks to a separation between James and her community. Reading it now, one gets the sense that James was down, in need of encouragement. I say unto thee, be of good faith and of good cheer, Smith told James. God has witnessed thy trials, and although thy life has been somewhat checkered, his hand has been over thee for good and thou shalt verily receive thy reward, he assured her, although thy life has been somewhat checkered. It's a striking caveat in an otherwise rather upbeat blessing. It seems to speak to the community's understanding of James, a woman with a checkered past, a child she had out of wedlock, a husband she divorced, a family that had by and large left the church. It cuts through the public image that she constructed and puts her in her place, on the outside, hoping someday to come in. Just as her patriarchal blessings seemed to promise belonging and acceptance, and yet to keep James at arm's length, so too did the church leadership's limited concessions to James regarding temple privileges express a similar ambivalence. In 1875, Jane James, her second husband, Frank Perkins, and several other African-American Latter-day Saints went to the endowment house one fine September day to do baptisms for their dead. Following Brigham Young's instructions, the baptisms performed that day were recorded in a separate book entitled Record of Baptisms for the Dead of the Seed of Cain or of the People of African Descent. 
James, and other African Americans were welcomed into the church, but kept at arm's length. They and their dead were acknowledged a part of the body of Christ, but recorded in a separate book, not fully connected to the rest of the human family. In the last decades of her life, James tried to stabilize her position in the LDS community by drawing on the promises that she believed Joseph Smith had made to her. Smith was long dead. Emma Smith had also died. But James said that through Emma, Joseph had offered to adopt James into the Smith family as a child. James had initially declined. She didn't understand then what, by the late 19th century, had become clear to her that adoption into the Smith family was the most effective way to secure her position in the post-mortal life. But now, she said, she did understand, and she very much wanted to take Joseph up on his offer. When James started making this request to be sealed to Joseph Smith as a child, she was one of throngs of Latter-day Saints asking for the same thing. James was different from her fellow petitioners in two ways that I think were important. First, she actually knew and interacted with Joseph Smith while he was alive. That status should have bolstered James's request to be sealed to Joseph Smith. But the other difference between James and others who requested sealing to Joseph Smith, of course, was that she was black. And that turned out to be the factor that had the biggest impact on the disposition of her request. While white Latter-day Saints were sealed to Joseph Smith by the tens, if not by the hundreds, James's request to be sealed as a child was denied over and over and over again. Nobody directly disputed James's story that Joseph Smith had offered through Emma to adopt James as a daughter. By the time she told this story in the 1880s and later, there were no surviving witnesses. There was and is no corroborating evidence to confirm James's story, at least none that we have found. We do know that adoption ceilings were not well understood during the Nauvoo period, and we think that no adoption ceilings were performed during Joseph Smith's lifetime. The understanding of adoption ceilings certainly evolved over the course of James's lifetime. So what Joseph and Emma offered her, if they actually offered adoption, may have meant something very different at the time of the offer than it did half a century later, when James tried to accept the offer. That said, I don't think James completely invented this story. I think she was telling the truth as she remembered and understood it. <coughs> but the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, I think, couldn't wrap their heads around the idea of giving Joseph Smith a black daughter in eternity. In their experience, that was not what families were supposed to look like. But James was nothing if not persistent. I have no evidence, but I suspect that she may have taken to heart Jesus' parable of the importunate widow in Luke 18, who just kept bothering the unjust judge until he gave her justice against her adversary. And somewhat like the widow, James eventually got the Quorum of the Twelve to give her what she requested, sort of. Worn down by James's requests, the Twelve ultimately decided that James could be sealed to Joseph Smith, but not as a daughter. Instead, they created a new ceremony to attach her to Smith as a servitor. That ceremony was performed on May 18, 1894, just over 125 years ago, in the Salt Lake Temple, not far from where James lived at the time. James, however, was not allowed to be there. Instead, Zina D.H. Young stood as a proxy for James, even though James was alive and well and nearby. <coughs> James, you see, was allowed to do proxy baptisms in the temple, but she was not allowed to set foot in the temple any further than the baptistry. As early as 1852, Brigham Young had articulated what scholars have come to call the priesthood ban, a term we usually use to indicate the prohibition on sharing the priesthood with men of African descent, which lasted from the middle of the 19th century all the way up until 1978. But Jonathan Stapley's work has helped me understand how and why this priesthood ban also implied a temple restriction that kept James from attending and participating in her own sealing. Stapley explains that for early Latter-day Saints, sealing rituals made heaven a material reality. And he writes, quote, those who participated in this temple liturgy during Joseph Smith's <coughs> lifetime commonly referred to themselves as well as this material network of heaven as the priesthood, unquote. 
That understanding persisted through much of the rest of the 19th century. A temple ceiling drew those sealed into the cosmological priesthood, into that material heaven. To participate in temple rituals, endowments, and ceilings was to gain access to the priesthood, which <coughs> Latter-day Saints' racial mythology of the time prohibited for those people believed to be Cain's posterity. Thus, for James to have been present at her ceiling to Joseph Smith as a servant would have allowed her to participate in the priesthood in a way that the priesthood ban precluded. Neither the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles nor James found the compromise of sealing her as a servant satisfactory. The ritual was never performed again, so far as we know, indicating that the Quorum of the Twelve did not find it a useful way of arranging relationships in eternity. And James went back to petitioning for sealing to Joseph Smith as a child. The priesthood ban, of course, was lifted by revelation in 1978. That's canonized in the DNC as official declaration two. And the racial mythology that undergirded the priesthood ban has officially been disavowed. But it shaped Jane James's experience of her identity as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in profound ways. Jane James told her story in particular ways for particular reasons. I've already talked about some of the ways that she shaped her message, like her focus on Joseph Smith and the ways he welcomed her. That was part of the way I think Jane James stayed on message, her overall message being that she too was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and that she belonged, and that in fact she belonged at the very center of the church. She certainly conveyed that message with this photograph. This photograph is very much like other photographs made in this studio run by an English immigrant named Edward Martin. We see a similar format and the reuse of many props here. I want to draw your attention to a couple of elements that Jane James herself either controlled or had input on. First, the clothing. All of us have sat at one point or another for a photograph. I'm sure of this. A family portrait or a school portrait or a senior portrait or a professional photo, right? Um, and we've all thought about what to wear in order to convey the appropriate impression. James here was subtle, tasteful, understated. She conformed to Latter-day Saint values which emphasized modesty and self-sufficiency. At the same time, the details here let the viewers know that James was not poor, reinforcing her distance from the institution of slavery the reflection of the light marked this fabric as high quality. The subtle embellishments of the dress, like on the sleeves, were in good taste and would have taken both time and skill, for which James would have paid. There's no evidence to suggest that she was a skilled seamstress. Her earrings, similarly, were modest, but not strictly necessary adornments. They bespoke her status as a consumer of high quality goods. Second, we're going to zoom in even more. See that book underneath her arm? This is a small detail that would have been barely visible in the original prints of this image, which were carte de visite size. So they were about three and a quarter inches high and two and a half inches wide. So they were pretty small to begin with. <clears throat> Looking at uh, Edward Martin's other photographs, we see that this wasn't a standard prop. So it was probably something that James brought with her to the studio. It appears to have gilt edges, a treatment that was reserved for the most important books in one's collection, and it's not big enough to be a Bible. My guess is that this is a copy of the Book of Mormon or possibly the Doctrine and Covenants, or something chosen because it looks like those books. James's inclusion of this volume in her portrait suggested both her literacy and her piety, conveying an impression of her as an upstanding member of her church. In the late 1860s, when this photograph was taken, photography was a bit of a national obsession in the United States. Everyone was having their portrait made. People used their images, or sometimes images of other people, as calling cards. And among middle-class Americans, it was virtually required that one have and display images of one, one's family members. So we might interpret James's decision to have her portrait made and its formal similarity to other portraits made in Edward Martin's studio as an indication that James was allowed to participate in the predominantly white Salt Lake society without regard to her racial difference. 
that might be how we want to interpret this image of James as well. After being welcomed into the home of Joseph and Emma Smith, when she and her family reached Nauvoo, James ended up staying on at the Smith home as a domestic servant. Here, James had her most direct encounters with the divine. While doing laundry, she went into a trance state and received information about temple ceremonies. Living with the Smiths, she was taken into confidence and told about the practice of polygamy well before it was taught publicly. James felt welcome in the Smith home. For the rest of her life, she told stories about her time living with the founding prophet. She emphasized his kindness to her, describing her bond with him as almost familial. Quote, he'd always smile, always just like he did to his children, she said. He used to be just like I was his child. I did not talk much to him, but every time he saw me, he would say, God bless you, and pat me on the shoulder, unquote. In the latter part of the 19th century, Latter-day Saints sought out James's stories of their founding prophet as the people who had interacted with him in life became fewer and further between. James told these stories to satisfy her co-religionists' need to remember their founder, to commemorate his life, and to learn from his example. But she also told these stories to position herself at the center of the Mormon story. Who, after all, could be more central than the founding prophet? And who could be closer to him than someone who lived in his house, who literally handled his dirty laundry? So after Joseph Smith was killed, James went to work for Brigham Young. James and her family were in one of the first companies to arrive in the Salt Lake Valley in 1847. She had gotten married to another black church member and had a couple more children by that point. Jane James and her husband Isaac both worked for Brigham Young in Salt Lake, but they eventually established a family agricultural operation living on the outskirts of the city. They did pretty well for themselves economically in the 1850s and 1860s, but in 1870, Jane and Isaac James divorced. Isaac James left Salt Lake. Jane James moved to a home more centrally located in the city, and in many ways she threw herself into religious life. She went to worship services regularly, but she also went to women's meetings. She spoke in tongues, which was a pretty normal thing to do at the time, and did not mean that she was speaking in another recognizable foreign language. It meant that she was speaking in the language of Adam or the language of God. Um, so it would have been unintelligible to her and everyone around her, unless somebody also received the gift of interpretation. She did faith healings. She bore her testimony to her co-religionists. She apparently married again for a few years, but that relationship didn't last. When James told the story of her life, she never mentioned her divorce, nor did she mention her second marriage. She talked about her status as a mother and grandmother. She gave birth to at least eight children, but she did not talk about having her first son out of wedlock, and she did not talk about her children's general failure to stay in the LDS church. She described herself as a widow even before Isaac James returned to Salt Lake in 1890 and died in 1891. She tried really hard to fit into the boxes that Mormonism provided to demonstrate in her life the qualities that Mormonism said it valued in women, purity, piety, domesticity, and industry. And for these qualities and for her proximity to Joseph Smith, James's community did accord her a measure of respect. She and her brother, who later came to live with her, were given reserved seats in the Salt Lake Tabernacle. She was called on in women's meetings and her remarks were listened to and recorded. She was well known in the community and sought after for her memories. She positioned herself at the center of the Mormon community. Looking at this group of, 1847, Mormon, of 1847 pioneers, photographed 50 years later in 1897, it's easy to imagine James wading into the center of the group, positioning herself right smack dab in the middle. I'd like to believe that she threw a few elbows on her way there. <laughs> but she was also kept at arm's length by the community, which I think this photo taken in 1905 illustrates beautifully. Jane James was well known in Salt Lake. She was often referred to as Aunt Jane, or sometimes Auntie Jane, that might seem to be a mark of respect, but when a white person refers to a black person as aunt or uncle, things get problematic. The failure to use James's last name suggested a lower, perhaps dependent, social status. 
An aunt was a term traditionally used by whites <coughs> to refer to a black mammy. Think Aunt Jemima. The term aunt marked the mammy's superiority to other servants, while not granting her the authority entailed in the title mistress. In Connecticut, where James grew up, scholar Frank Stone wrote that, quote, slaves were called by their first names with aunt or uncle preceding if they were older, well-liked, and respected in the dominant white community. A great example is the 1905 reminiscences about Joseph Smith collected and published in the Young Woman's Journal to mark the centenary, the centenary of Joseph Smith's birth. This is where the, James talked about how Joseph Smith treated her like one of his children in that passage that I quoted earlier. After a brief introduction, the piece introduced each contributor by name. It's not clear to me how Sousa Young Gates, the editor, decided on the order, but Lucy W. Kimball came, sorry, Lucy W. Kimball Smith came first, then Bathsheba W. Smith, then Jane Snyder Richards, then Rachel Ridgway Grant, then Aunt Jane James, who gets not only that distancing honorific, but also the explanation that she was a, quote, colored servant in the prophet's house, unquote. The reminiscences of five more women followed James's, all of them white women. None of them had a title, and none of them required an explanation of how they were connected to Joseph Smith. Jane James died in 1908. She had outlived all but two of her children. Her story was largely forgotten in the LDS Church until 1978. After the 1978 revelation, all of the temple ceremonies that Jane James had requested in life including sealing to Joseph Smith as a child, were performed on her behalf by proxy. The standard image of Jane James whenever her story is told is that 1860s portrait made in Edward Martin's studio. I'm guessing that this is the image that you're familiar with when it comes to Jane James, right? Um, it makes sense. We're pretty sure that it's Jane James. It's a good image. There's something comfortable about it. The format is familiar to us. But I think the, 18, the 1847 Pioneers photos are in many ways a much better illustration of her life. Whereas the studio portrait shows a woman in isolation, separate from the social, political, and religious contexts that shaped her life, one group photo shows James in the midst of those contexts, surrounded by white faces, barely visible among all the other details. And the other shows her as a part of the group but kept on the margins. In many ways, James, James is a marginal figure in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But as I said earlier, she's also a bit like Forrest Gump. She knew all the powerful figures. She showed up in the background of all the important moments. She and figures like her help us get a different angle of vision on the church's history, help us understand why the church is compelling to and how it's experienced by people who don't have all the power and influence. For scholars like me, it's easy to get comfortable with a standard narrative of history, sort of like my dad is comfortable reading presidential history. If we're accustomed to thinking about the story of the LDS Church through the lives of people like the ones whose names are on the buildings at BYU, looking at Jane James's story is a healthy affliction. James's life helps us see how elements that we might think of as purely cultural, elements like racism, manifest themselves in religious contexts and shape everyone's experiences in ways that can be difficult to detect if we concentrate only on the main characters. So if we care about understanding history, if we care about getting the details right, then I think that's an affliction that we should embrace. So thank you very much. You've been a great audience, and I'd be happy to take questions. We have almost no documentation to back up any kind of relationship with Emma. Um, Jane speaks positively of Emma, but she's talking about Emma in the 1880s and 1890s and 1900s. So Emma is dead by that point. Um, we don't have any 
except for how Jane talks about her. We don't have any way of divining any kind of relationship. And Jane talks about her as she's kind of a good employer. Um, I don't get the sense from her, from James's perspective that there is a strong sense of um, friendship or, or other kind of relationship there beyond employment. Um, but she is a welcoming hostess. She is a, a sort of pillar of her community. Um, and she seems to be a good boss. That's about all I can tell you. Give us a picture of how old she was in Nauvoo. So in Nauvoo, she would have been in her early 20s. Um, she's born. She's born in about 1820-1821. We don't know exactly. Um, she goes to Nauvoo in 1843. So she's 23, 24, something like that. Yeah. Does Edward Martin appear elsewhere in Mormon history? Uh, not as a uh, pivotal figure. He's um, Edward Martin is a an English immigrant. Um, he sets up a, a photography shop in Salt Lake um, shortly after the Civil War. Um, and I, I find him a sort of, he's, he's a cameo, right, in the movie. Um, in the movie in my head, I should say, um, yeah. clarify. Um, but, you know, he, he's like a, an affable guy, he, it seems like, and he's running ads in the newspapers saying, bishops, please inform your congregations that I'll take people's pictures cheap. Um, you know, and he'll take produce in exchange for pictures. He'll like anything you can give him. He will. He'll take your picture for it. Um, he was a sign painter before he started uh, doing photography, um, and going into photography seemed to be a sort of growth industry um, around that time period. So, yeah. We had a question as well, Suzanne. Is that, am I making that up? No, you're not. I thought you were looking past me. No. But, um, um, two questions. One is, how did she become free with her mother having been enslaved? Okay, so uh, Connecticut passed a series of laws. This was uh, fairly common in the Northeast um, at the time. And I don't remember exactly what year the, it was, um, but they said basically anybody born after this date um, will be free. Um, and anybody who's enslaved on the date that this law is passed will be freed at their 21st birthday or 25th birthday or something like that. Um, and so her mother was uh, emancipated um, under those laws. And so Jane was born free. Um, Jane's grandmother, who Jane said had come from Africa, had been brought from Africa, um, was never freed because um, those that same set of laws included a provision for elderly people who legislature didn't want to become uh, a charge, a burden on the public. So they didn't want um, slaveholders who had elderly slaves to be like, okay, I'm done with you. Um, and so Jane's grandmother was enslaved for her entire life, um, but her mother was freed. And the second question, because clearly I don't have my geography and racism put together very well. I remember uh, this uh, story that's in Paul Reeves' book about um, the biracial couple that lived in Lowell, Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, that was probably 1840s or, or so. Mm -hmm. um, so my question is that, you know, geographically, here were these abolitionists around the Boston area and maybe New York, and did it kind of stop there with all of this treatment that she received on her way through the Midwest? They didn't sound like they were into abolition at all yet. They, or, they, the folks in the Midwest. Yeah, these people that mistreated her on the train and you know with not mm -hmm. passing mm -hmm. and all of that it just sounded like they were more racist than I thought the North was. So being an abolitionist does not make you an anti-racist. I think that's the, the basic key, oh, okay. right? Um, lots of abolitionists were vehement racists. Um, and so, and most Americans, I think, were not one extreme or the other. They were kind of in the middle on the question of abolition. Um, so, so it's not as easy or clear-cut a picture as I think we often imagine. Um, 
So going up the Hudson River from New York City to Albany, um, that steamship would have been segregated for sure. Um, and uh, going down the Erie Canal also segregated accommodations. Um, so segregation was not necessarily an expression of anti-abolitionism. Um, it, was, it was sort of the way things worked, honestly. The other thing that I think is really interesting is that abolitionists saw Mormonism as, in fact, a, a sort of twin of slavery. They saw it as a kind of mental slavery of followers of Joseph Smith. And so it, it's entirely possible that Jane and her family ran into abolitionists in Ohio, for example. Um, Cleveland was a sort of hotbed of, um, it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Um, so it's highly likely that they would have run into people who, if they had read the James, the Manning family as um, fugitive slaves, they would have been inclined to help them. And I think they would have been really confused um, had they found out that the Manning family was actually going to gather with the Mormons in Nauvoo. So, yeah. Yeah. Your presentation of the... Uh the Buffalo incident, mm -hmm. they're not allowed, their family's not allowed to continue. Right. Um, it was consistent with my understanding of it, so I just want to clarify to make sure that what you're, you were telling me is consistent with what I thought. And that is that um, uh, Jane and her family, traveling companions within her family, are the only ones who are not allowed to continue on, that the rest of the Latter-day Saint body, who were in fact uh, Caucasians did proceed on the barge uh, west. Yes, so far as I know, um, except that I would add that there were other black members in that that group that Wandell was leading, okay. and they also were would not have been allowed to they continue. Were not associated with Jane and her family. Correct. Okay. Yeah, um, and so it was either at Buffalo, or it was at Cleveland, right. or maybe it was at Akron. Um, we're not exactly sure where that happened, and Jane gives different answers, and the evidence points to, you know, some other possibilities. Um, so, but at some point, the black members and the white members of the group were separated, and white members continued as planned, floating their way to Nauvoo, and the black members walked. Yeah. How common or uncommon for proxy ordinances for moving I honestly don't know. Matt, do you know? I mean, I couldn't hear that one. Very uncommon. So the question was how common or uncommon were yeah. proxy ordinances for people who were alive at the time of the ordinance? They're certainly unheard of now. Yeah. So. Right, yeah. That, yeah, that was my sense, was that they were not exactly a common thing to do. Um, okay. And so. They can be performed now, but it's in case cases of a person who has severe mental or physical disabilities and can't go to the temple, it can't be done. Okay. It's so it's possible, but it sounds like it's still fairly very, unusual. Very rare, but yeah. It's done occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'd always heard of Jane Manning and her family walking however far they walked right. in isolation. Were they with a, a group of other Black as far as I can tell, by the time they arrived at Nauvoo, um, the the folks who were not in Jane's family um, had dropped out, gone back. Um, I think that may include her stepfather, um, Cato Treadwell, who doesn't appear to actually show up in Nauvoo, as far as I can document. Um, and there are a few other people who seem to leave Connecticut, but don't seem to arrive in Nauvoo. Um, so my guess is that the moment that they decide, yeah, no, um, is that moment where they're denied passage. Yeah. So I didn't catch this. Did she remain active her whole life? Her entire life. Her yeah. Entire, but you mentioned that several of her family members fell away from the church. Yes. Yeah. What were the circumstances of that? Do you know? Uh, well, um, her son Sylvester was excommunicated for unchristian-like conduct. Um, her daughter Violet. Uh, went to California, married a Methodist missionary, became a Methodist, married a Methodist minister, became a Methodist missionary in Liberia. Um, her daughter, Ellen Medora, went to California, became a prostitute, 
um, and, and ended up running a house of ill repute and got brought up on charges for that. Um, not in the church, just to, by the law. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, many of her daughters, let's see, so um, I think I can actually run through this. Let me say, this is a, a test for myself. So I've talked about Sylvester, Ellen Medora. Those were the two children who outlived her. Um, Violet Isaac was stillborn, so he didn't really have a chance to do anything at all. Um, her son Jesse uh, was rebaptized shortly before he died. He predeceased her. He died in her house, um, and so he would have died more or less in the good graces of the church. Um, uh, that's Jesse. Miriam died in childbirth or shortly thereafter, and same for Marianne, I believe. Um, and I'm only missing one child, so I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> do, do you have any idea how many grandchildren she had, and, and has anyone ever identified a living descendant of me? So I've been in touch with one living descendant who's actually in the LA area. Um, my understanding is that there are others as well. Um, but her, I think it's I think he's her great-great-grandson actually provided to me the um, patriarchal blessings that are printed in the back of the book. Um, so you can read them for yourselves. Andy, and uh, Well, I know that we were just discussing that some of the sisters in Zion have talked about her still being sealed as a servant, mm -hmm. Joseph, and how, and, and bringing that up. I don't know enough to know if that has been, at what technicality of that to be challenged. Do you know if her any of her direct descendants have have brought any concern? Not that they would be part of the faith, but is it did it register on their radar at all as being a pejorative kind of treatment and something that they would like revoked? I I honestly have no idea. Yeah, um, I would have thought that that ceiling would have been canceled well, when she was sealed to Joseph Smith as a child, but I don't, I, I can't verify that. It should um, be in the records. But I don't, I don't think I have, as a non-member, I don't think I have access to that. Uh, I've tried in the past and not succeeded. You'll probably so. just have to become a member then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what to make of that solution. Hey, solve for the research. Come on. You've got the lingo down for sure. Yeah. Get an LDS research assistant. <laughs> Medora, what city did she, did she basically reside? Ellen Medora got brought up in charges someplace in California for running a house of ill repute, and then she moved to Nevada. Um, <laughs> Where it was perfectly <laughs> legal. <laughs> do we know a city in California, do we know a city in Nevada? Uh, I do. It's written down someplace. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yes. Amy Tanner Theriot actually is the person who ran down a lot of this information um, and posted, she, did a great story about it on Artist Partial's blog, Keep a Pitching oh, In. Okay. Um, so that would be the place to, to look for her. She used a pseudonym. Um, she went as Mrs. Nellie Kidd, oh. or maybe Miss Nellie Kidd, um, which actually turns out to have been uh, the name used by a, a mesmerist at around the same time, um, which I find fascinating. So, yeah. Yeah. Back to kind of her activity in church, is your sense of her that her devoted, you know, activity in the church for her whole life was as a true believer, or kind yeah. of more along the lines of, "Hey, I'm I'm here as part of this community, and I'm equal, and you know, here I am, and I may make you uncomfortable, but I'm I'm I have every right to be here just as much as you do." I guess I don't see those two as mutually exclusive. I think she was a true believer, but I think she also worked really hard to claim her place in the community. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, she was, she was all in, I think. Um, she was completely convinced, um, and Joseph Smith played a huge part in that for her. She, it, he did not play a part in her conversion, um, but if you look at her autobiography, which she dictated at, sometime between 1902 and 1908, he takes up a good, a, close to 50%. And she spent eight months with him, um, 
out of you know an 80 plus year span um which i think suggests how important he was in her imaginary um yeah can i just ask you one other Uh uh-huh so in your research did you find any other additional information regarding (laughs) male black priesthood holders early in the early saints. So I wasn't looking for that. Um, did you run across and that? I, I didn't run across any. Okay. Um, so Paul Reeve has done a lot of work on that. Connell Donovan has done a lot of work on that. Um, and they're the ones who really have that information sort of locked down. Hmm. But yeah. Yeah. I visited her grave in Salt Cemetery, yeah. and I remember it being very special, kind of a very nice stone or the monument. Am I remembering mm-hmm. that correctly? Yes. Very, yeah. When was that put there? Late 90s. I want to say 1995 or 97 is when the first um, monument was placed and dedicated, and then I think it was updated maybe in the early 2000s. Um, the Genesis Group and Margaret Young and Darius Gray um, were particularly instrumental in making that happen. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, your observations on, on church uh, honoring her, have we done enough? Is, it, is there so much more? It seems like there's so much more the church could do, but your thoughts on that? I think I see Jane as a kind of problematic figure in that regard. It's it's really interesting to me the way um, to, to sort of observe the volume of talk about Jane over time. Um, so she dies in 1908. She, the story sort of basically dies with her for a long time. Um, And then she starts getting picked up a little bit in the 70s, and then there's this 1978 revelation. There's a profile of her by Linda King Newell and Val Avery that comes out in Ensign in 1979. Um, And then, you know, it sort of dies down for a while, and then the late 90s, um, and especially the early 2000s, talk about Jane just explodes, which is really kind of weird, um, that sort of profile. Um, And it took me a long time to figure out what was going on, but I think what was going on was that talking about Jane James was a way of talking about Joseph Smith, because talking about Jane required saying, you know, she lived with the prophet Joseph Smith and he welcomed her into his house and, you know, and so it made Joseph Smith into a racially egalitarian, um, acceptable prophet for the 21st century, just in time for his 200th birthday, right? Um, And so, so it becomes this way of talking about Joseph Smith and she gets used as a way to um, sort of valorize the, the values of the 21st century church to say, look, we have always been racially diverse. Um, we have welcomed black people in. Um, and, and yeah, her, her um, temple work has been done, so it's all okay now. Um, and so in that sense, ceremonies that honor Jane James, those kinds of things make me a little bit uncomfortable because it feels like using her without addressing maybe the underlying problems that need to really get confronted and sat with and worked through. Um, and so, so that's, that's sort of my take on it. Does that make sense? That's great, thank you. I saw a hand over here or something. I just wondered who's her descendant. Who's her descendant. She, who's, he, who's he related to? I have no idea. Oh. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure which child um, would be his the the link between Jane and and him, so yeah. Sorry. Other questions? Yeah. Do you know of any other of these century of Black Mormons that um, had an autobiography or that dictated their life story? 
Um, so Elizabeth Roundy, who is the woman who took down Jane's autobiography, uh -huh. um, somebody described her to me once as a little bit like a vulture. Um, she was, uh, she's a really interesting character and somebody should do more on her, actually. She is also an Im English immigrant like Edward Martin. Um, she never met Joseph Smith. She immigrated after his death. Um, but she is the one who drives the uh, campaign to really honor Joseph Smith. She starts the church sort of celebrating his birthday, and she writes a lot of, let's say, not great poetry about Joseph Smith um, to, to honor him. Um, and so a, a lot of what she is, she's collecting these memories, right? Um, and I, so I think that as much as Jane was interested in getting her story out there, Elizabeth Roundy was also interested in collecting Jane's story because it was also a story about Joseph. Um, and so she collects Jane's story. She also writes down um, Jane's brother's story, Isaac, her, her brother Isaac Manning's story. Um, but those are the only two that I know of. We have other kinds of documents for early black Mormons. Um, or uh, for other black Mormons. So Samuel Chambers, for example, um, goes to deacons quorum meetings for a long time and gives his testimony. And there's a stretch of years where there's a clerk who really takes good notes. Um, so we have those. Um, we have other kinds of things um, in different cases. But um, Jane is probably the best documented in a lot of ways. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.